Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. This is the Entrepreneur Architect Podcast, Episode 51. Welcome back to the Entrepreneur Architect Podcast. My name is Mark R. LePage, and this is the podcast dedicated to a successful life as a small firm architect. Whether you have plans to someday start your own firm or you're in the process of launching a startup, or you might be an experienced small firm architect just trying to make a difference, this podcast is for you. My goal is to inspire you to build a better business so that you may pursue your purpose with passion and live the life of your dreams. A few weeks back, I traveled to the West Coast of the United States to attend the Equity by Design Symposium organized by a committee of AIA San Francisco called the Missing 32%. Uh, The event was well attended, and in fact, it was sold out, and it was very, very well produced. Uh, It was a day filled with thought-provoking seminars and workshops focused on the disparity between men and women in architecture. Today's guest on the Entrepreneur Architect podcast is the founder of the uh, Missing 32% Committee, the chairman of the Equity uh, by Design Symposium, and a rising star among leaders in our profession. She's been a guest on the show before, and in fact, she is the first two-time guest on the Entrepreneur Architect podcast. And I've invited her back to discuss the event and to share some of the very revealing results of the Equity by Design survey. Rosa Shang, welcome to the Entrepreneur Architect Podcast. Well, welcome back. 
<laughs> Thanks, Mark. I appreciate it. And I'm also uh, pleased to be the first uh, two-timer on your show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I, typically we do origin stories. So this, we're going to skip the origin story. If anybody wants to uh, to uh, listen and hear about Rose's um, uh, interesting journey to become an architect, working with Bo uh, Bolin Sawinski Jackson Architects and working directly with Steve Jobs on the original Apple stores, I encourage you to listen to episode 27, which was our first time we, uh, we did this. Um, today, I want to talk about the symposium and, and, and really how, how are you recovering? The last time we were, we were uh, last time I saw you live, you were <laughs> off to pick pumpkins with your kids. That's right. Well, we had an excellent time uh, picking pumpkins, but the, um, the results are the aftermath of the symposium have just been uh, truly amazing. I am overwhelmed by all the positive response that we've been getting uh, from that day. As you are a direct witness, uh, we had 250 attendees. There was a wait list of over 50 people, and we had um, people writing essays trying to get in, you know, uh, reasons why they should be a part of it. And we really wanted to include everybody as much as we could, but at the same time, we had capacity issues. So I think it, you know, going forward and planning uh, for future years, we'll uh, take that into consideration of how popular the program was. Yeah, I definitely I want to congratulate you on the overwhelming <laughs> success of, this, of the symposium and, and to thank you for allowing me to, per to participate in it. It was, uh, oh, of it was an honor to be part of it. Yeah, we, we couldn't have done it without you and a lot of other uh, volunteers. The amazing thing is we had a lot of our success was um, due to volunteers coming in, such as yourself. We had Neil Pan from ArcaSpeak, who will also be doing a, a podcast about um, different people's opinions about feedback about the symposium. And um, we had uh, Stu Friedman, who uh, was our keynote closing speaker, who uh, wrote a book called Leading the Life You Want. We could talk about that a little bit later. But um, again, all volunteers coming and uh, contributing to the cause. So we're really grateful for that. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was a, a, a fantastic event. Could you, before we get into any of the details, could sure. you give sort of a, a summary of for people who haven't listened to the first episode and don't really know what Equity by Design is or the missing 32%, could you give a, yes. a brief overview of what, what your mission is? Absolutely. So what started out as a question of um, why there are so few women leaders in the architecture profession kind of transformed itself into uh, a mission of why are uh, people leaving architecture, period. Uh, we've had anecdotal discussions um, prior to our survey. Uh, we did a survey in February, which a lot of people participated in which resulted in uh, 2,300 responses that kind of dug deep into questions where we categorized it as pinch points. Um, if you visualize it as a life of an architect from graduation to your retirement of your career, what are the potential areas that uh, would be hurdles for architects leaving the profession? And we'll go over some of the findings in more specifics, but um, I think it, in framing it this way, it's digestible and people get it um, that through the stages of your career, there's potential uh, challenges that uh, cause people to leave architecture and not just women, but men as well. So what can we do as a profession uh, to retain the talent from going to other professions that may seem more lucrative, um, less challenging, if you will? And 
um, how do we you know keep the um, the knowledge intact you know how do we empower the people that do stay to have the best optimum skill set that they can so best practices uh, for work-life flexibility um, licensure the importance of licensure um, the power of negotiation and the fact that architects you know are generally avoiders of negotiation so we cover a lot of different topics um, but uh, the the symposium itself came about because one we wanted to release the findings of the survey and two we wanted to bring it to the next level so the theme of this uh, symposium was knowledge discussion and action so the knowledge part was disseminating the survey findings the discussion part was having an active dialogue during the course of the symposium about these various pinch point topics. And then lastly, action, a call to action that this is in fact a movement. Um, it's beyond just architecture. It's something uh, that a lot of different um, professions are talking about. And if there's a, a challenge, if there's an issue, we all have a part to play in it, um, especially for equity. Equity is for everyone which is one of the themes that we tried to emphasize, it's not just about women. Um, if we really want the profession to be at its optimum, if we really want people to stay, if we want to have the quality of life improve for the people working in the profession and make a profit, that's not a bad thing. Um, we have to work at it together. Yeah, that was one of the things that I picked up very quickly at the symposium is that every issue that we discussed there was a, was a universal issue. That's right. Um, they they weren't uh, women's issues. They were they were people Thanks. issues, and <laughs> and it was uh, it was very encouraging to see and to and to be there as a man. Um, and there were quite a few men in the audience. That's right. Uh, that that um, you know that, that it certainly wasn't you know anti man or you know th that that it's or even it was it wasn't even overwhelmingly pro woman. It was pro architecture. And how exactly. do we how do we you know make the the uh, profession better for everyone, um, which is why I gravitated towards you from the beginning is that that's that's the way you approached it is that it's it wasn't necessarily, um, you know, a, a, a women in architecture uh, issue and that it was a it was a leadership issue. Absolutely. And that was our fundamental you know mission statement from the beginning is you know, how do we kind of have those difficult conversations and really look deep, dig deep within ourselves as individuals and as firms and say, what are we doing well and what are we not doing so well? And the not doing so well, we tend to push under the rug. So we're trying to start that difficult conversation with this kind of safe forum of the survey findings, because it's easier to talk about survey findings and topics at large than to say, I have a problem with you specifically, or you are doing this to me. Um, people get defensive when you bring up conversations that way. So I think this provides a safe uh, mechanism to start those conversations and to say, well, you know, are we as a firm or am I as an individual having implicit bias? Am I you know, supporting and mentoring uh, the interns in my firm as well as I can? You know, are we hiring and finding the right people and the right fit to come and work at our firms? So those are some broader questions. Uh, but I think uh, we've had really good response on um, trying to get the survey out to people. You can go to the website of www.themissing32percent, spelled out, not the symbol, .com. And you can look at the results 
uh, in detail and we do a summary report. We'll have a more detailed report planned out um, for the early part of 2015. We tried to get that done for the symposium, but we found that trying to plan the programming for the symposium and trying to do a comprehensive research report was uh, bigger than the whale that we were trying to eat at the time. So I, we thought strategically that the best way to start the conversation was to get these really digestible infographics out, which you know are stunning to look at, but also are chock full of information for the person that doesn't really know much about the conversation to begin with. And then um, as people want to do the deep dive, <clears throat> excuse me, um, they can, you know, look at the report. We'll also have the, the background report, which was uh, provided by the research team from Mills College. So the uh, PhD statistician who put it together has a deep dive report, which will be good bedtime reading for most. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that the, um, it is beautiful to look at and it's and it's very digestible it's very easy to understand so i encourage everybody to go view it i'll, I'll have also have links on the show notes uh, for this episode which is episode 51 so if you go to entrearchitect.com episode 51 we'll have links of everything that we discussed today uh, including a link to the results of the survey and before we get into the survey results i just wanted to say if you missed the symposium and um you want to catch up, there is a uh, compilation, if you will, um, on the website. If you go to uh, about, and uh, there's a part called uh, 30 per the 32% in the news, you'll be able to see all the articles that have been written. We had great coverage from Architectural Record, Architect Magazine, um, Contract Magazine, as well as live blogs and follow-up blogs from attendees. So uh, there's definitely ways to get the knowledge and we'll also be doing some continuing ed later on with uh, follow-up seminars locally, but also we'll, we'll be doing a tour of sorts to different areas of the country and uh, have offerings that way as well. That's great. So let's, let's get into the survey. Sure. Um, how do you want to do it? Do you want to st talk about the pinch points first and how, how yes. they're structured and then get into more detail? Yes, absolutely. I'll go over some of the um, overall demographics first before okay, I dive yeah. into the pinch points. Yeah. So as mentioned before, we had 2,289 respondents. 66% uh, of that uh, um, body was women and 34% was men. A lot of people question that right away and say, oh, well, that's you know skewed, that's self-selecting and you know, that's not a valid uh, study, but we preface it by saying this is a grassroots effort. Uh, we don't uh, we don't purport this to be, you know, a uh, intense, you know, uh, statistically valid, quote unquote, survey. This is a point to start the conversation. And the fact that that many people responded to it gives it validity to keep going and to do more in-depth official research in years to come. Right, right. So it is what it is. It, it is what it is. Yeah, and, 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 it, um, and there's lots of information that comes from it, whether it's whether it's skewed or not, doesn't really make a difference. That's right. So we had uh, the the majority of respondents were in the millennials and the Gen X uh, uh, quadrants, and then we had some boomers, and we even had some late generation. So they're called silent generation uh, respondents. So we were pleased to see that we did have a spectrum. 
Uh, and then we also had a lot of people who are licensed responding. So we had 65% men who are licensed and 50% women who are licensed. And that will come into play later on when I go over the licensure analysis. Um, and then also years worked in the profession. The majority of people who responded had less than five years experience. Uh, again, the millennials coming into the profession. So it'll be interesting to see what they have to say. Right, and that also probably is because it was most of the promotion of this of the survey was done through the internet and social media and uh, those kind of connections. And those are the generations that are very active on that. That is correct. We also had three categories of respondents. Um, those who are still actively in the profession, we had a uh, set of questions for sole practitioners. And then we also had a set of questions for those who have left the profession altogether, uh, whether temporarily or permanently. So um, with that, we've also tried to separate the um, survey findings into three buckets. One category is called hiring and retention, where we talk specifically about the career pinch points in more detail. And then the second part being growth and development, where we dive into topics of licensure and um, career advancement and some of the factors that are involved with career advancement. And then finally, we have meaning and influence, which is a section that we talk about things that aren't necessarily discussed in your typical survey, such as caregiving, uh, taking a leave of absence, and uh, even issues involving uh, leaving architecture and why people leave to begin with. So um, the first part, hiring and retention, we'll talk about the career pinch points. Um, the five categories that we're identifying are hiring when you first come in. What are the challenges with even getting in the door or finding the right firm to start out with so that you aren't leaving because you're not feeling that you're connected or you're getting anything out of, of that particular job? And then uh, paying your dues is the second pinch point, which is, uh, quote unquote, the first three years of your uh, professional career uh, coming into it. And that's a time when uh, most we found most of the survey respondents actually left during those first three years. Those are the most critical years of whether or not uh, people stay or in the profession or if people leave. Yeah, that was really um, surprising to me. That, that, yes. That it was a pretty big number too, right? With, yes. With how many, uh, the percentage of how many people left and when they left, they, they left within the first three years. So they go through school and they do all the things that they need to do to get into a, an architecture program, or to, to get into the profession. And within that first three years, they realize that this is not for them and, or something else causes them to leave within yes. the first three years. And then when you dive deeper, uh, the reasons for leaving, you know, some are known, the long work hours, the low pay, but the lack of engagement, that was something that was really resonant. Um, the fact that they're just drafting or they're asked to do a lot of charrettes or fire drills, but they're not getting the connection. They're not getting the mentorship. Um, they're not getting the meaning of, you know, developing uh, the career interests that they really want to investigate. So I think that's important to note for um, people that are in the hiring positions and mentorship positions to look out for that, um, to connect with people in those first three years, um, make that connection and really understand what the talent is capable of doing and what they're interested in doing. Um, let me see if I can go over any of the other 
interesting ones in the hiring and retention section before we move on. Oh, another one was the um, satisfaction question. So are you satisfied at work? We had 28% of women saying that they were completely satisfied and not looking for other jobs. And we had 41% of men saying that they were satisfied and not looking. For both aggregate, in, in a way, that's a stunning number in and of itself. Um, that the majority of people working today in architecture are not completely satisfied. So that begs the question of, you know, asking deeper questions of why they're not satisfied. We kind of analyzed the overall key factors that influence job satisfaction, and we found that the obvious one being, well, if you're a principal or if you attain, or if you're on that principal track, you are 30% more likely to be satisfied. Um, the fact that your firm has a clear and effective promotion process was a 25% plus increase in satisfaction. And then the day-to-day -day work aligning with career goals, that was a plus 23% in satisfaction. So really paying attention to those things that people are saying about what would influence their satisfaction I think is important for firms and uh, you know, individuals going forward to be cognizant of that. Yeah, and it's not and it's not just about making money. That's right. Um, but the transparency and promotion, I think that would be a no-brainer. But I think most firms have more of a casual promotion process where the threat of implicit bias comes into play. Um, abstractly, I don't know if most people know about implicit bias, but there's a study that came out in a New York Times article talking about Google as a company really trying to dive deep and um, educate their uh, employees about implicit bias doing a training session even that has this really comp compelling video and there's actually a Harvard uh, website called Project Implicit where you can go in and test yourself to see if you have bias and everybody does that's the answer even men and women have implicit bias and it's actually something that's very primal within us for survival but where it comes into evolution, you know, we don't need it as much anymore, except in certain circumstances. But when it comes to play in the workplace, it prevents people from advancing into leadership positions, then it's a problem. And women have implicit bias against women. That was the other <laughs> startling yeah. revelation. So that's something that we all have to work on, I think, as one of the key factors of pinch points. Um, again, you can go to the website. Uh, for Project Implicit and, you know, uh, find out more. Mm -hmm. And also the Google video is very informative. Um, so going, sorry to go off on a tangent, uh, we'll go back to pinch point number three, which is licensure. And uh, we found some really interesting facts about licensure. The majority of um, women that do stay in the profession uh, past the 15 year mark are licensed. So that begs to question, you know, we have to dig into that a little more, um, but it seems to say that if you can get past that hurdle, if you can get all your ARES uh, taken and passed, and if you can get those IDP credits, which we're working in, in partnership with NCARB, and they're doing a lot on their own to make that process easier. There's actually an app now where you could track your um, IDP hours, and there's actually decreasing the required number of hours overall that you need to get. So there's a lot on their website about 
things that they're trying to do to overhaul the process. But I think when you're early on in the profession, it's kind of the blue sky mentality of, well, I don't really need my license. You know, I'll get it later. And that's the trap where you say that and you say that. And then we've had so many anecdotes. We have so many people write in saying, you know, I wish I had done it differently. You know, if you talk to your 24-year-old self, what would you have told yourself? A lot of people say it would have been to get the licensure out of the way, just get it done right out of school while the momentum is fresh, while you don't have all these um, life events tugging at you and preventing you from you know, doing the best that you can and projects getting in the way. Um, that was something that was talked about heavily. Yeah. It takes a lot of discipline to, uh, to get your license, to, to go through the process and take all those exams because of the way it's set up where you can essentially take them whenever you want to. Um, where originally, or not originally, but prior to the computer exam, it was given one date per year. And if you didn't take it, you'd have to wait an entire year. And so there was more incentive to get ready and hit that deadline. Whereas today, those deadlines are self-imposed. Although uh, NCARB has, has recently um, uh, brought in the, the rolling clock that does sort of create that deadline that you have to get them all done within a certain amount of time. Um, but uh, it takes a lot of self-discipline to set those dates and hit those goals and get all of the exams completed within a certain amount of time. Absolutely. And then one of the um, breakout sessions that we had, I don't know if you attended that one or not, was about innovating licensure, um, creating a value proposition for licensure beyond just you have to take it or you have to have it. Um, looking deeply into the firm culture, you know, are they getting reimbursed for the exams? Um, that was one of the top rated benefits on the survey for licensure. And even just getting acknowledged, um, when you do pass, what happens? Do you get a slight salary uh, increase? Um, do you get noticed in, you know, your firm newsletter, et cetera? Do the principals take you out to lunch? I mean, these are all small things, but they all add up to making people feel that it is a culturally important thing to do, and um, you know that it's that it's uh, validated. Yeah, there could be a title uh, distinction as well. That even right. if they're the same position, if it's a project manager, you know, there could be a distinction between an unlicensed project manager and a licensed project manager. So there's a title distinction. Absolutely, and there's also a value proposition for firms. Um, you could build the new staff, newly licensed staff person at a higher rate. And there's less liability involved when you have more licensed architects. Your insurance premium goes down. So a lot to be learned there. Um, let's see, what else do we have here? So going back to the pinch points, um, we talk about caregiving being one of the major pinch points that's not talked about very much. Uh, whether it's caregiving of younger ones for being parents or whether it's caregiving for um, yourselves or your spouses or um, elderly parents, which is a problem that's coming up and becoming more prevalent, um, that you need time uh, off to be able to do these things. Sometimes you need to take a leave. You need to take more than just one or two sick days to do that. And how does that affect your career traje trajectory? Um, we found that in a, a parent's analysis of caregiving situations that um, the majority of people who are employing uh, third-party caregivers are women. 38% in 
in order to stay relevant in the profession. They're not, the, the part-timers are there, but um, primarily they see that it's not working. You know, you're kind of trying to do both, um, but you're not recognized as, uh, you know, being there or in the game. And then on the other side of the equation, you know, uh, anecdotally, the women are, don't feel like they're being recognized or, you know, at home that they're doing their best job that they can. Um, as far as the impact of caregiving on salary, that was the most fascinating thing of all. So uh, across the board, if you look at mean salary by caregiving situation, uh, we kind of look at each of the different situations, whether there's a shared duty, where there's an equal division of labor for caregiving, if the spouse is the primary caregiver, or if the um, worker is the primary caregiver. In each situation, women are making less than their male counterparts. And there's a couple of studies and theories out there about just, again, implicit bias about whose primary role is it to be the caregiver, right? Traditionally, we think it's the mother. Um, so when the mother does it, it's not seen as special. It's kind of like, well, you need to do it, and therefore you're not fully committed to work. Um, but then on the flip side, um, men are seen as heroes. And again, it's implicit bias of things that are trained into us. But they actually get rewarded uh, as the primary caregiver, like, wow, look at how much he's doing. He's doing his job, and he's a primary caregiver because that's not what we typically expect of fathers, which is you know unfair, and I think we need to kind of have that um, conversation more frequently and change that um, perception. Because I think men and women both have to have uh, that equal partnership in order to make it work. I see that in my own personal life. That Amory yeah. and I really work hard to raise our kids uh, equally. Um, right. She probably does more caregiving than I do, but you know, I have we have our situation in our studio intentionally to be able to both raise our children. And I see that very often where if I present to somebody that I'm, a, you know, that I'm very involved in my kids and I and I'm and I'm, you know, helping raising them, I, I do get, a, you know, uh, additional credit from people for doing that. And when Anne-Marie mentions that, um, you know, it's she's a mom. And right. so I see that happen right. every day. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up, because it's an important conversation. Just awareness, I think, is uh, half the battle. Right. Yeah. Uh, but interestingly, back to the, the salary impacts, um, adult people with adult children, you think, oh, okay, well, they're out of the woods. They don't need caregivers anymore. Salary should be pretty even. Well, between the women and the men that were surveyed, there was a $40,000 delta. And guess who was making less? <laughs> with adult children. Yeah. So what that shows us, I mean, it could, it, it's definitely generally generationally influenced, I believe, because those people are, you know, in the latter part of their career and things were definitely different 10, 15 years ago. But it shows you the kind of amortization of leaving, uh, you know, work temporarily on ramping, off ramping to take care of kids and never gaining that salary back from when you took that time off more than a year, let's say. Um, and then there's been studies that show, even in, when we go back to the discussions about negotiation, um, you know, the, the theory that if you don't ask, you don't get. Over the course of your whole career, um, there was a study that said you make about $4 million, you know, in aggregate. 
Well, $1 million of that is gone if you don't negotiate in wow. comparison That's with your counterparts. $1 million right there. So in one of our other breakout sessions, we um, talked about the survey findings for negotiation, which are fascinating as well. Um, we compared men and women, and there wasn't really much difference to who was negotiating. Um, men and women were about equal in who was in, in our survey responses of who was negotiating. The interesting point is the negotiators versus the non-negotiators. So men and women negotiators made more than men and women non-negotiators. So what does that tell us? Practice negotiation. Um, yeah. If you're uncomfortable with it, go to a class, go to a course, read up on it, uh, figure out techniques, practice, practice, practice in a safe environment with your spouse. Um, we joked around about negotiating at the farmer's market you know, for your corn or whatever the situation is. Um, you need to negotiate throughout your life, but it's even more important in your professional career. Um, that additional services fee, that contract uh, that you're you know, slashing your fees for, that's gonna uh, affect everybody down the line later on, your employees, um, your own salary, um, and learning to kind of know your own worth as an architect and to create a value proposition and stick by it is something that we tried to hit home, you know, in that breakout session. Yeah, that's a really important topic and, and one that continuously comes up here at Entrepreneur Architect about knowing your worth and, and getting paid for what you're worth. Uh, so that one hit home here for sure. So moving right along, there's so much uh, information here. <laughs> uh, there's le firm leadership, and um, I'll kind of interplay that with the average salary by years of experience. So there's been a lot of theory about uh, the gender gap in salary, and there is a gender gap in salary, even from the, the start of one's career. So one might say, well, later on in life, you know, the different pinch points happen that you know, divide men and women that are, you know, primary caregivers or something else happens. But even at the start of their career, there is a $4,000 delta between the survey respondents of men and women and the salaries they make, which hypothetically, if you're coming out of school and you have the same degree, you have zero years of experience, you should be making the same amount of money. So the $4,000 difference is interesting and warrants, you know, more study. But then when we get to year 10, 15, uh, through the rest of one's career, that divide increases exponentially. So we're seeing, you know, delta between 10 and $15,000 um, in, in that hurdle area where we cover, um, you know, the licensure divide, whether or not you're licensed or not, and then the caregiving situation, and then ultimately who gets promoted to firm leadership. So uh, a direct corollary is looking at who gets promoted and who advances. We uh, did a survey uh, question about uh, what position you have in the firm. So up a, until the point of 10 to 15 years, there's a trajectory uh, where women have actually slightly more uh, titles and leadership positions than men of the respondents. And then when you get to that 10 to 15 year mark, it shifts. Uh, where men have about a 10 to 15 percent uh, delta over women in their firm leadership 
roles. When you look at the principal uh, question, you know, are you a principal in your practice? That, uh, again, that 10 to 15 year mark is where there's a, you have to see this graphic uh, on the website, but there is almost double the amount of uh, difference. Let's say it's um, 25 to 40% difference between the amount of men that get to be principals versus the amount of women that are principals. So that's something that we really have to work on. Yeah. And there's been a lot of debate of, is it confidence? Uh, are women lacking confidence? And versus, no, it's a systematic thing. It's the perception, uh, the implicit bias. Or is it something even deeper? There was a uh, TED Talk that I'll send you the link to by a woman named uh, Susan Colatono that talks about uh, the missing 33%, but has nothing to do with our name. She categorizes the missing 33% theory as what women need to lead. So something that never gets talked about uh, as women are career coached is uh, she defines it as um, business and financial acumen and stressing that that is just as important as being uh, perceived as a leader, you know, and having the qualities of a leader, but actually the performance and valuing the bottom line, you know, valuing um, bringing in the fee, um, growing the business, you know, all those things are downplayed, I yeah. think. And what, until she said that, it kind of was this light bulb of, oh my gosh, she's completely right. Um, yeah, and, that, and that's men and women. Yeah. I mean, that, that's you're talking my language now because it's, <laughs> you know, that's that's my whole mission is to teach architects how to do that better. And right. So uh, you know, I totally agree. I I, I definitely want to see that video. So so uh, yeah, I'll send you yeah. the link. It's really uh, and there's a transcript with it that you can follow along as well. Okay, moving right along to meaning and influence. So these were, you know, the bigger picture questions. Uh, why are you an architect? How do you define success in your career? And that was one of our early kind of teaser findings that we released. What we found, which was really interesting for those that didn't see the teaser, are what people, we had 16 answers. Um, your typical answers being uh, salary commensurate with position, um, a successful project outcome, happy clients, being happy yourself. All those were important, but the ones that actually floated to the top of the list of what people thought were the primary drivers of success in their own careers, uh, there are three that stood out. Uh, one was working with a positive, talented, and collaborative team. We're calling it working with the A team. And that uh, held true mostly for people working in firms and outside of architecture, less so for sole practitioners, obviously, because they're primarily working by themselves of working on significant projects uh, with personal and professional significance to themselves. That was something that rang true across the three groups that we surveyed. And then finally, work-life flexibility. That was the highest of all three uh, of those answers that were the top answers. And again, that was a shocker. Uh, something that we know to be true for ourselves, but hey, we didn't think that everybody else thought so, right? Yeah, right. And it it comes to um, the debate about, you know, as we advance in technology and we have all these um, toolkits and, and programs that help us do work in other places, 
the flip side of that is how to create those boundaries, right? While we have the flexibility to have an integrated uh, uh, flow of work and life together as a, a strength, we also have to know when to shut down and, and when uh, to draw the line of when too much is too much, right? So it's a balancing act, and I think it begs the conversation of what are tools that or advice that we can give to each other about you know, maximizing that integration to afford the profession and productivity while still maintaining the quality of life, going to pumpkin pick with your kids and be there for their homework assignments and return that overdue library book. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, that was, uh, oh, and then the other um, questions we asked in the meeting and influence section had to do with, uh, you know, why people started their own practice. Uh, we found that one of the biggest uh, proponents was no opportunities for advancement. When people feel that there is a glass ceiling, men or women, that they don't have the opportunity to be a principal or even a senior leader, period, they're going to look elsewhere. They're going to start to think, well, maybe I should start my own practice. Maybe I should partner up with a couple of other people and you know, have more control, not only over my schedule, but what kind of work and what kind of projects that we do. And uh, design autonomy was also something that was a driver in why people started firms. And I think that comes into play uh, uh, the lack of dialogue about design and how um, there's this discussion about typecasting, about people that become designers versus people that become project managers or people that become production or technical experts, right? right. Uh, what happened to the Renaissance architect that did everything, that knew a little bit of everything and enough to be the kind of conductor of the orchestra and have some expertise but not be typecast into, well, you're the spec person or you're the CD you know, guru uh, or you're just the designer or you're the, you're the PM, you, do, you deal with the contracts. So what we see, um, we ask the question about what is your current experience and what is your desired experience? And what most people are doing, especially those that are coming uh, into their careers, they're doing mostly production work. More women are doing um, production work than men, but that seems to be the bulk of what they're doing. And they're also doing CDs and design studies, um, but they're not the design leads or uh, managing the firm and understandably so you, you could one could argue well you need more experience to be a design lead and you need more experience to lead a firm um, but I don't think that precludes people wanting to do those things so we see in the aspiration of desired experience that people do want to become the design lead and manage the firm and I think excuse me <clears throat> that comes about with a disconnect between academia and what is taught in studio culture and then what is actually the reality of practice. So I think the, um, the architectural schools could do a better job of um, providing that transition, that bridge in that uh, final year of study uh, between what they learn in school and the studio culture and what is provided as a transition into actual practice, right? Yeah. So I, I have a question for you. Yes. What do you think? Um, what is your your most? What's the uh, the most surprising result from the survey for you personally? <laughs> I knew you were going to ask that question. <clears throat> That's a difficult one because there's it's chock full of information. Yeah. 
But I think the one that you mentioned earlier, uh, there's two. One was the adult children and the salary uh, disconnect, the disparity. Yeah. And the second one was the uh, people leaving, the most people leave in that first three years. I, I thought it would have been, well, it's, you know, the 10 to 15 year mark where we see the uh, caregiving challenges, right? Or right. the glass ceiling. Right. Or burnout, just in or general. Or burnout. Yeah. And the numbers of men and women are pretty close in that less than three years. So yeah. we're, we're dealing with a bigger issue than just women leaving architecture. Yeah, that's a universal systematic problem. That's not a, not a yes. gender problem. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. Oh, and the last thing I'll just mention that people can look at in the um, survey is taking a leave of absence. We found that there was a huge uh, bias around taking a leave of absence, and it's kind of catch-22. When the perception of uh, the impacts of people taking a leave of absence, a lot of people that didn't take leave perceived larger impacts, negative impacts for taking leave than those that actually did take it. So what it, that's telling us is it's not, it's bad, but it's not as bad as those people who don't take leave fear, that don't take leave at all. And then the other theory is that because they don't take that leave of absence, they don't have empathy uh, for the people that do have to take it. So the, the policies that are in place that uh, should support people, you know, in those critical years, such as providing simple things, such as providing technology backup uh, and support and software, you know, cloud systems and servers that allow people to do work at home when they need to do work. Most people aren't asking to work at home. They're asking for the flexibility to do that if they need to. Right. So ultimately, people want to work hard and they want to be um, collaborative in the studio. But life happens. And when it happens, they'd rather have the comfort and knowledge that they have that flexibility rather than worrying about it. You know, they're, they're physically in the office, but their brain is somewhere else worrying about something that they should be taking care of at home or, you know, commuting. Right. I think that the, the tools that are, that are maturing now uh, will allow that to happen in general, I think that, that, that having the virtual firms and the flexibility to work from home is just a matter of time. I think architects are slow adopters for technology, and I think uh, that's happening already uh, in in in, uh, in other industries. And I think the architecture profession will catch up with that, uh, and that will become the norm. Uh, you know, probably in the next f five years or so. Definitely. So I. Um, I want to talk about what what do we do from this point forward now that we've had this symposium and we have the these results um, and, I, and again I, I really encourage people to go see the results read the whole report uh, because it's really very very interesting um, but what do people do now what what's the next step yes the now what question right <laughs> now we have all this great information what do we do with it I'm glad you asked, Mark, because we have a blog post on our website called the Equity by Design Challenge, uh, 15 things you can do to jumpstart equity in architecture today. Um, we've compiled this list, again, as a list of recommendations. You don't have to do everything. If you just pick two, you would feel better about uh, you know, moving things forward, becoming part of the movement. And everybody has you know, different schedules and different um, passions, 
but what we're asking people to do by and large is to talk to each other, uh, to bring these discussions, that things that we're thinking about into the realm of discourse. Because half the battle is just understanding the points of view of the people that you work with and expressing your own points of view, whether it's satisfaction or dissatisfaction. Um, but there's some more um, tactical things you could do. Uh, so if you, and we have um, a, a toolkit, if you will, and links. Something that was brought up at the uh, symposium that was really fascinating is that Arup partnered with the Society of Women Engineers in creating uh, what they call diversity and inclusion cards. So beyond just our own survey information, there is a toolkit, if you will, of a conversation starter. I don't know if you've ever been to a dinner party where you have like an icebreaker set of cards of questions that you know you ask each other. Um, so this is kind of like that icebreaker uh, set of cards, a conversation starter, uh, where you can do it at a lunch and learn, or you can you know do a special seminar to talk about diversity and inclusion and what that means for your own practice. And uh, they're well thought out. There's front and back, and they have. Um, survey findings that kind of, again, instigate that conversation on, on a wider level for the AEC community, which I think is great. Um, you can start a, uh, there's a bunch of things you could do. You can uh, go to uh, the different websites that we've mentioned, Arcuspeak, your own website, Mark, being and the business of architecture being great resources for how to activate and become better architects, because I think beyond just the equity part, um, you're nothing unless you're showing, you know, your skill set and you're projecting your value as, as a, a proficient architect. So one is just to sharpen your own uh, skills and, and to become, you know, somebody that's seen as a leader in the industry. And then, you know, you'll have a stronger voice in, you know, practicing what you preach and, and sharing what you know. Um, writing and blogging, I think that's something that's a huge challenge for architects. Um, but it's something that if you don't practice and you don't try to do, uh, you don't get good at it. Same with drawing or sketching. Um, and I think having a voice in this day and age, you know, in, in social media, on the internet, is really important for moving some of these discussions forward. And you have a great uh, blog post as well as some others that we've linked to. Uh, we talked about you know joining Twitter as something that again architects might not feel comfortable doing as just a first step. Uh, there's so much going on in terms of conversation about equity, and not just in architecture. Um, across the board, there's equity movements in other professions, and by and large, um, there's uh, even the UN is involved in that. Emma Watson uh, spoke at uh, UN summit for uh, it's called He for She. It's a campaign saying that equity is for everyone and, you know, what can we do together to start that? And she said something really powerful, which was, if not me, who? And if not now, when? And that was something that, you know, influenced me and inspires me every day, that we each have something uh, to contribute, small and large. We talk about negotiating, um, that I mentioned before, um, part of being a good architect is um, being able to negotiate for yourself and your fees and, and for the people in your firm. And without that, I think we don't have a voice. Um, we see the word design used liberally you know, by other professions. Um, business schools, in fact, are using design thinking and they're marketing it 
and they're making money off of it. And it's one of those discussions that we need to have a louder voice in and negotiate for ourselves. Like, well, why aren't we involved in marketing and branding our design thinking skills to other professions and, you know, becoming profitable at it? Um, there's certain things that we can do to expand our traditional circle of practice to become um, more infiltrated, I think, in uh, society at large about design as a value um, proposition. We talk about getting licensed and uh, you know, organizing an event. Uh, that's something that's a little harder to do. You probably need a little bit of support, a group of people. You could start with a lunch and learn in your own office. That's pretty easy. Uh, you could do a webinar on something that you feel passionately about having being a tool for equity, whether it's software that allows you to do work uh, virtually or it's uh, a practice strategy that you know your firm has or a policy for leave and on-ramping and off-ramping share that with everybody um, a lot of people just don't know they're too busy and you think oh everybody knows that that's something that you know should be uh, normal practice procedures well half the battle is getting the information out there and having it shared uh, there's some really great resources from other countries like parlor um, equity Equitable Practice Guides uh, from Australia, they're kind of uh, leading us in the way that they actually had a survey uh, two years ago and they've been, uh, pub they've published a set of uh, best practices that's available on their website, again, to everyone, not just architects, but it's a great resource for some of these um, equity challenges that we talk about and how do you uh, start, you know, to make things uh, fair across the board or, you know, try to make things fair across the board. And then, yeah, so there's more and more and you can read it on our website and we'll follow up um, periodically with more ideas and brainstorms about um, being active in making equity happen. Well, it sounds sounds like a, a good mission. It sounds like uh, we're we're headed in the right direction. It, will there be another event next year, or is it going to? Uh, uh, what are, what's the plan for the symposium? So that's the million dollar question. Uh, we are uh, actually not going to have a symposium next year, but we're, what we want to do is to have uh, quarterly events for broader outreach. So we will. We want to do a deep dive. I heard a lot of feedback about the symposium being a good tasting menu of sorts for the whale that we need to eat <laughs> for equity. Uh, but people really wanted to get deeper into some of those issues that we just brushed upon. So we think that it's fair on, on an off year, if you will, of not having a symposium to um, dive deeper into some of the research findings to follow back with some of the survey respondents who said, yes, I will. I would like to talk to you more in depth. So we will have anecdotal interviews with some of those people who agreed um, to that part of the survey, extended survey. And then we are going to be having these quarterly programs which talk about uh, negotiation or licensure or whatever the topic is that, again, has more frequent uh, uh, intervals and has more impact because having it once a year isn't enough and in a complementary way the AIA Women's Leadership Summit has their biannual um, summit in the fall and they're planning to have one in 2015 in Seattle so we want to support them as well uh, we don't want 
uh, conference fatigue. You know, we want to be able to provide um, fresh programming and um, yeah, also be able to work on things to be able to provide quality programming and not just produce, 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 but um, think strategically about what we're um, giving out. And I think I mentioned briefly at the symposium that next year will be our Inspire campaign. So Inspire is something that we started as a pilot where we actually feature anecdotes and interviews of men and women who um, support equity, um, not just by saying it, but by doing it. So overcoming challenges in their careers. Um, the first two uh, Inspire um, interviewees were uh, Pamela Tang and Haya Kadera Zebedee. Uh, both of them came back into the profession. They were part of the missing 32%. And somewhat against odds, they've overcome you know, what people would think would be impossible challenges. For example, Pamela had four kids. She uh, wasn't licensed, and she came back recently last year. And she, her son actually told her he was going to college and said, Mom, it's your turn. You know, you've been holding back. We know that you've always wanted to be an architect. Go for it. So she came to us with that kind of um, enthusiasm and said, what do I do? What do I do? So honestly, every one of us in, our, in the back of our heads was probably thinking she has no chance and how do we let her down easy? But we didn't say that to her. We said, okay, well, if you really want to do this, here's that laundry list of things that you need to do to become an architect. And we were shocked when she came back to us a year later. She stopped coming to the meetings and we thought, oh, great, we scared her away. Uh, but she came back a year later as a sponsor donating to the symposium and saying thank you for all your encouragement and your kind of must-do list because she did everything. She took all of her AREs and passed them within a year. She taught herself AutoCAD and Revit. She got her job, uh, herself a job for her IDPRs to start clocking in with one of our 32% uh, um, members who owns a firm. So somebody who is sympathetic. But I think that was the greatest challenge is finding people that will believe in the people that want to come back. And how do we provide programs uh, to combat implicit bias of, oh, you're too old, or oh, there's no way that you're going to be able to learn all this stuff. Uh, she is the kind of lighthouse, if you will, to women who, or men, and men who don't think that it can be done. She did it and she's doing it. And we can't wait to report on the day she actually gets licensed and completes all those ITP hours yeah, she, that she needs she to would, do. She had a, a really interesting story. Um, thank you very much for being with us today uh, at, the, <laughs> uh, at the podcast. What's, um, remind us and the listeners where the best place to connect with you is. Yes, um, I would say if you go to the website for the missing 32%.com, you can uh, go to the contact part of the website, which is the far right corner, upper left, uh, sorry, upper right corner, and you can fill out the form. Um, I wish it was more personal than that, but there are so many people that are interested, and we do try to respond to everybody that um, contacts us. If you'd like to contribute by um, writing a blog post or being part of our Inspire series, we would love to hear your story and be able to share your challenges and um, successes in overcoming those challenges to inspire others. Thank you, Mark. You're welcome. Thank you for being here. And thank you very much for your leadership in the profession. My pleasure. <laughs>
Um, I'd love to know what the listeners think of our, our chat here today. So um, you can go to the, uh, to the blog at entrearchitect.com slash episode 51, and you can leave a comment there. Again, all the links to all the, the uh, resources that we discussed today will also be there. Um, and I'd, I'd, uh, I'd really encourage you to, to get involved and do, uh, do your part. And, and uh, I'd, re- I'd like to know what uh, you, the listener, are, are going to do to advance the, uh, the agenda. So um, leave a comment at the blog at entrearchitect.com slash episode 51. And then click on all the links in the show notes and go visit uh, the Equity by Design website. And uh, Rosa, thank you very much for being with me again. Uh, I appreciate your time. Thank you. This episode of the Entrepreneur Architect podcast was brought to you by Entrepreneur Architect Academy. Entrepreneur Architect Academy is a community of like-minded entrepreneur architects seeking to take their small firms to greater success. Members benefit from having free access to all the products that we offer at Entrepreneur Architect now and into the future for as long as their members, those products are free. We also meet weekly on a private video conference where we discuss new topics of business uh, and we dive deep into building a successful small firm architecture studio. Um, This is an opportunity to be part of a group of professionals who are determined to take their businesses, their lives, and their leadership to the next level. If you're interested in learning more about Entrepreneur Architect Academy, please visit entrearchitect.com slash academy. And if you like this episode, please go to iTunes and leave me a review. This is how you may help me spread the word about Entrepreneur Architect and our mission to become an influential force in this profession. Go to entrearchitect.com slash iTunes or in iTunes, just search for Entrepreneur Architect. You'll find us there. And we have no new US-based reviews this week. Boo-hoo. Can you guys, can you please send me a review? If you haven't reviewed, please review entrearchitect.com slash iTunes. But wait, I checked on the UK iTunes website and I found two reviews over there. I'm shooting for 100 reviews by the uh, by the new year. And with these two, that puts us at 56. I think that's a long shot, but you never know. Um, I'll need to click through all of those other international sites and, uh, and add them up to my total. This week, I have two new reviews um, from the UK. The first one is Ben over at uh, houseplanninghelp.com. Thank you, Ben. Uh, five stars. Being an entrepreneur is often about seeing opportunity ahead of others. This podcast started as a 2020 project in 2012, and it's clear that taking this risk has paid off for Mark. He sounds like he loves it. The podcast explores how you become successful in an archi- uh, as an architect, but there's information that's relevant if you work in many areas of construction. Uh, I'm, sure you, uh, I'm sure he would like to podcast more often. Currently, it's only released once a month. Uh, but that may have changed by the time you read this review. And it has changed because this review was written back in September 20th of 2013. So thank you very much, Ben, for being an early adopter in the review scene. Um, and Elrond Bureau, also October 18th, 2013. So this is uh, over a year ago. Um, Elrond Bureau wrote five stars. Uh, I only subscribe 
a few podcasts. Uh, and this one is one of them that I look forward to each new episode. Mr. LePage has a calm and gentle presentation style and gives plenty of space to the people he interviews to allow them to expand and elaborate on their answers and discussions. It means the conversation flow, uh, conversations flow nicely and get into more depth than interviews packed full of short Q&As. Although I'm not a business owner and a, or a solo architect in the U.S. and hardly do any residential work, I work for a medium-sized architectural practice in the U.K. I always find aspects interesting, informative, and inspirational. Keep up the excellent work. So guys, thank you very much for those uh, reviews. I didn't know they were there, and I wanted to just check the UK ratings and just see uh, see if anybody was there. And my friends Ben and Elrond, who now, uh, over the past year, have actually become friends of the show. So I appreciate that, guys. Thank you very much for that. And I also want to thank the guys over at the Arca Speak podcast for their support of the show. We have sort of a friendly rivalry going on competing for reviews and they were kind enough to encourage their listeners to review my show uh, and so I'm throwing it back to them this week uh, if you haven't listened to the Arca Speak podcast I think you should it is a fantastic show and they have uh, it's very entertaining and they have great topics and while you're over there leave them a review as well uh, we're all in this thing together you know the more architects who learn about what we're doing here at Entrepreneur Architect uh, or what the guys over at Arca Speak are doing, or Enoch Sears over at the Business of Architecture podcast, the, the, the better the whole profession will be if, if, uh, if the more architects know what we're doing here on these podcasts. We're all on the same path, and we're all seeking to improve the, the profession and make this world a better place through architecture. So I encourage you to, to go listen to those podcasts, leave reviews for them, spread the word about what we're doing, um, and, and uh, things are going to be uh, things are going to be all right. So that's a wrap for episode 51. Until next week, my name is Mark Arlapage and I am an entrepreneur architect. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great week. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real 
to this day, I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast. It's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.